Welcome to episode 9 of Song Chronicles. In this episode, we will continue our conversation with the masterful engineer and producer, Al Schmidt. Following my first interview with Al, he emailed me to say that he wanted to talk again, that he wanted to share some additional stories that people might not be familiar with. Much like his work as an engineer and producer, Al kept thinking about how he could make things better. That is the type of considerate, conscientious person that he is. So, on August 7th, three days after our first conversation, I interviewed Al again via video on Zoom from his home in Los Angeles. For those who are not familiar with Al Schmidt, he is perhaps the world's most honored engineer. Al has 20 Grammys to his name, a Hollywood Walk of Fame star, and an honorary doctorate from the Berklee College of Music. His work has spanned so many generations and genres And at 90 years old, Al is still at the board, having recently finished work on albums for Diana Krall and Melody Gardot. In this interview, Al talks about his love of microphones and how he enjoys experimenting in the studio. He'll also reveal some of his most memorable experiences of his career, from hanging out in a hotel room with Sam Cooke and Muhammad Ali, to working in the studio with his favorite singer. Frank Sinatra. Song Chronicles is proud to present the second part of our two-part interview with the legendary engineer and producer, Al Schmidt. I thought maybe I could add some stuff, maybe things they haven't heard too much of and tell you a couple stories, that kind of thing. Let's do more. One of the things that you said when we spoke before that I loved was how even though you know certain things will work in a room, you like to come in and switch everything around, not just in a recording studio setting, but in your life, how that philosophy of experimenting and never getting really set in your way with anything, how that affects you in all areas of your way of looking at life and your vitality, because obviously you've been going a long time and you're still really excited about life and what you do. And a lot of that has to come from a feeling of making things new. Yeah, you know, I am excited about life still. And, uh, you know, I love doing what I'm doing, uh, recording music. You know, when I was a little kid, we were really poor, and sometimes we didn't even have enough to eat. And so I am so blessed that I was able to have five children and raise them well, and, and they were all out in the world doing well. And I've been able to uh, contribute to making some great records. And I've been able to contribute in the education of some engineers who are making some great records. Changing things around. I've always been interested in, gee, what would it sound like if we did this? Or what would it sound like if we did that? And I had the opportunity when I was a staffing engineer at RCA to do a lot of that experimenting. You know, I would set up Harry James' big band one day in the corner, another day I'd have him in the middle of the room, another day I'd have him over on the other side. do that just so I knew what the best parts of the room were, 
what the ambience would be in the room. Anyway, experimenting, and, and I love doing that. The same thing with microphones. You know, I'm a microphone freak. I love mics. And trying different mics and putting them on different instruments. And, and you know, obviously, I'm infamous, I guess, for using all my microphones in uh, Omni because I use good microphones, and I love the bleed that comes into the microphones. Anyway, I've been blessed that I've been able to be in a position to experiment and uh, do a lot of that stuff. And also the times that you quit jobs that were secure. I mean, that's another thing. It seems like you have this thing in you where if things are not vital in the moment, it's hard for you to be engaged and give your all in it. And, And you seem to be this conduit for bringing the level around you up to a vitality and excitement, and, and that seems to be coming from you. Well, thank you. I hope, to, I hope so. I hope that comes from me because every time I go into the studio, I'm excited. And if I'm working with someone who I've never worked with before or only a few times, then I explain to them my philosophy and how I want things done and what I expect from my assistant and how I want to set up and why I want to use certain microphones. So they get an education about how I record a couple hours before a session. And then when the session starts, they can see what I was talking about. There aren't a lot of people left like me that recorded back in the old days where everything was done mono or everything was done two-track, mono and two-track. And you had the balance at that time, there was no fixing anything in the mix. You know, you could maybe edit from one take to another, but that was it. Otherwise, you had to capture what was there at the time and get all the moves and everything else. So it trained my brain, I guess, to be aware of that and to uh, continue doing that. So tell me about arrangements and in terms of ensemble, because you've done 100-piece orchestras, you've done vocalists with a minimal amount of accompaniment. If you had an artist today come to you and say, I want to make a record, I have no idea what I want it to sound like, I don't know anything, what do you think? What would be your next question? My question is, I'd want to hear what they sounded like, number one, but Number two, do they have a song they want to record? If so, what? where do you want this song to go? Is it R&B? Is it country? Is it whatever? And then you sit down with them and talk about arrangements once you know what they're looking for. And, and then hopefully you bring the arranger in to meet with the artist and me and, and go over what's going on. He hears the song, comes up with some ideas, talks to us about it. And, you know, we talk about what musicians we think would be right. Then we hire the guys and get in the studio and do it, get it done. Yeah, and keys, of course, are really important too for a singer. Yeah, absolutely. Getting the right key and hopefully, uh, yeah, sometimes uh, an artist can think they can hit a certain note and they and they have a problem with it. So maybe down a half step is better. Yeah. 
So there are record producers who don't really touch the board and they're just looking at the big picture, almost like a director of a movie. And they've hired all the specialists to do the arrangement, to do the engineering. What do you think of this different beast of the producer engineer, the one who is in charge of the entire sound of everything and the arrangement? Are they two separate jobs or can they be compartmentalized? Yeah, I think they could be blended into one job. You know, I've done a lot of uh, records where I produced or co-produced and did all the engineering. And, you know, it's something you go over with the artist, you talk to the artist about it, how you want to do it, how you want to set up and, you know, what songs we're doing and who the arranger's going to be. So there's a lot of work and budgets have to be factored in. So it's a lot of work when you're engineering and producing. But, you know... I worked hard all my life and, uh, you know, I was shining shoes when I was seven years old. So, you know, hard work never scared me, you know. I I enjoy work and I enjoy contributing. Mm -hmm. So when we were exchanging emails, you said you could tell some stories and um, I actually was reading your book and I was very taken by one particular day of your life where you were in a hotel room with Cassius Clay, later Muhammad Ali, and Sam Cooke hanging out with the two of them. Yeah. that You said that was one of the best days of your life. Yeah, that was one of the most fun days. It was New York City and I was producing Sam Cooke at the time mm-hmm. and Sam was going to open at the Copa and we were going to, to record the album live at the Copa. And I was at the Hilton, and he was at a hotel diagonally across the street from me. And I would go over every afternoon, and we'd talk about what we're doing and just hang out in general. And one afternoon, I went over there, and Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, uh, he was Cassius at the time, was there with Sam. And Cassius had just been signed to Columbia Records, and Sam was helping him with his vocals. I think the song was Stand By Your Man or something. And he was helping him with his vocals and how to phrase things. And the two of them just started. And I, I never laughed so much in my life. They, they were so much fun to be around and just irreverent. And I mean, it, it was great to be around these two great men and just be a fly on the wall and, and laugh and, and contribute somewhat in a funny way. And, uh, Yeah, it was great. It was one of the highlights of my life, and I can still picture it in my mind. That's a beautiful experience to have. I'll tell you another story that isn't in the book. It was a Saturday afternoon, and I'm recording Sammy Davis Jr., and the song is What Kind of Fool Am I? So Marty Page was the arranger and uh, did the arrangement and everything. I was the engineer, and the producer never showed up. I won't mention his name because he's a ni- he was the nicest man in the world. But he totally forgot about the session. So Marty Page and I did What Kind of Fool Am I, which was a fairly good hit for Sammy. Another Sammy Davis story was Stephen A was producing. He was like 21 years old. Why they got him to produce Sammy is beyond me. But we were in the control room and I was the engineer and he's producing and Sammy came in and we made a playback of what we just heard. And there was some discussion going on and what to change and what, what's going on. And fine, everything's fine. Now Sammy starts to head back into the studio and Stephen A says, okay, Sambo, go get him. Well, Sammy stopped in his tracks, turned around and said, Sambo, 
No, Mr. Davis. From now on, you call me Mr. Davis. So Sammy went back out, and every time the kid wanted to uh, tell him something, or he had to say Mr. Davis. So Sammy put him in his place right away. I don't think the kid meant it, but he was like 21, 22 years old, and he had no experience with someone like Sammy Davis. Well, that's one of those classic stories that they'll tell at Blackbird Academy to young people going into recording studios, like the big list of what not to do. Yeah. Well, if I walk into a studio that someone else is recording and producing everything, and I listen back to what's going on. If somebody asks me something, I, I don't give an opinion. I mean, this is their job, unless they really force me to say something. Otherwise, I try to stay out of it and, and let them do what they do. I'm going to ask you a question that I, I hope I, I don't regret and feel embarrassed about asking afterwards. But do you have that sensation ever when you're listening down to music and somebody walks in the room and you hear it differently just because they walked in the room and somehow your psyche is tuned into how they might be hearing it? Or is that just some crazy thing that I do? But I just wanted to know if it's a thing. I don't know if that's crazy. Uh, what you do, I th- th- things like that happen on occasion. Yeah, someone will come in uh, the control room when we're either mixing or doing something and all of a sudden things sound different, you know, and I don't know whether it's a vibe they bring in the room or mm-hmm. what it is, but yeah, it takes a little time to uh, readjust, so to speak. Yeah, the energy and the moments, right. it is an energetic thing in the studio. So when you go out and enjoy other arts other than recording, what, what do you enjoy? What do you like doing? You know, I'm an art collector. My wife and I collect art, modern art. And uh, so we go to galleries. We go to auction. Can't do that now, but we did that a lot. That was one of our favorite things to do. Go out to good restaurants. We both love good food. That's tough now. You can't do that. Most of the restaurants that Lisa and I went to are now closed, at least for the time being. So, uh, you know, I just, Lisa's a great cook. I stay home and we enjoy uh, each other's company and and I enjoy her cooking and it's really cool. That's a beautiful thing. I want to ask you about Frank Sinatra. You know, at what stage of his career did you first come in and what is it about the super secretive locked up U-47 microphone? (laughs) Well, I've been a Sinatra fan since I was 13 years old. I, I loved it. I used to play hooky from school in New York and go to the Paramount Theater mm-hmm. and catch him when he was singing with Tommy Dorsey. And, and he was my, my favorite, still is my all-time favorite singer. So the story goes, Phil Ramone called me on the phone and said, hey, Al, how are you? And I said, good, bud, how are you? Everything was good. We chatted along and he said, uh, what's your schedule? And I had got my book and he, I said, how much time? And he said, about three weeks. So I said, yeah, and when? And he told me and I said, yeah, I'm good. That's great. And he asked me what my fee was and I told him and he kind of hesitated a second but didn't say anything. So we chatted more and more and more. And about three months before that, some magazine I did an interview in, and they asked, did I have any regrets? And I said, one regret, I never got to work with Frank Sinatra. So now back to Phil. So Phil and I are talking. And just before we hung up, I said, by the way, Phil, who's the artist? He said, Frank Sinatra. <laughs> I said, Phil, if you'd have told me that in the front, I would have done it for nothing. And then he said, being a smart ass, 
if you'd asked me for more, I would have given it to you. <laughs> so when Sinatra finally came in, the first time he came in, he started to sing, and he, he was hoarse. And he said, not tonight, guys, and left. So then he came back in, and we were standing, Frank and I, right in front of the brass section, the trombones and trumpets. And he said, where do you want me? And I said, well, Phil has got that little booth over there that he built. It's got air conditioning. It had a bottle of Jack Daniels. It had Camel cigarettes. And it had Tootsie Rolls. Frank liked Tootsie Rolls. And he looked at that. And then he looked at me with those big blue eyes and said, I'm not going in there. I said, okay, where do you want to be? He said, I'd like to be right here in front of the band. Cool with me. And he said, I had the famous 47 microphone. And he said, I want a handhold mic. Yeah, we got some sort of Vigo wireless microphone, and that's what he used. It was great. I got to have dinner with him three nights in a row. There were like seven of us, seven guys all around the table, and he just held court, told stories, and wonderful. He told a story about a, a mafia guy, a uh, soldier in the mafia, and he was such a great thief. He could steal the hubcaps off a car while it was moving. So, <laughs> so that to try that sometimes. Anyway, that was what it was like. And it was unbelievable. You know, we, it was like a wake me up. I'm dreaming. I'm at a table here with Frank Sinatra. He's telling all these great stories. What's wrong with this? One of my thrills. And I, I love that he would, would stand in the middle of the room. He's kind of famous for stopping the session if he's not a good voice. I have heard oh, that yeah. before. He would go home and in spite of all the money being spent on the orchestra, he just would say, I'm not feeling it. Yeah, exactly. That's what happened. And then, then when he did feel it, we got all the songs done in one night. He did each song one time through. The only time he stopped to go back was if the tempo wasn't right. And he was counting them off, and then he was say, no, no, that's not right. And then he'd go back and, and recount off, and we'd do it. But, yeah, we did, I know, nine songs, I think, like that, nine or ten. And it was... The One take. Yeah, the orchestra and the vocal, you had to get the whole thing. This was on multi-track tape. Yeah, this was his last album, the duets album. Yeah, it was cool. I mixed the record in New York with Phil, and we hired Nico Bolas to come and help us out because there was so much work going on at one time. So, uh, And Nico was in New York at the time. So, so it was the three of us. It was a wonderful time. We had a great time making that record. Phil was one of the greatest producers ever, and uh, he was just an amazing guy. He had a great sense of humor. You know, he was a dear, dear friend, and, and the three of us together, we laughed a lot. And that's a good thing when you're making good music and laughing at the same time. It's pretty cool. You're enjoying it. I love those stories. And Henry Mancini, the Peter Gunn, that famous, iconic song. Yeah. What was that session like? Well, what happened was, on the original uh, session, where they did that theme, uh, Bones Howe was the engineer, and the producer was Cy Rady. And something happened between Cy and Bones, and the next thing I know, Bones was off the session, and I was on it. And that was my first time with Hank. And I finished the album, I did eight more songs. Or nine more songs. 
album came out with a huge hit, number one. And then, from then on, I got hired right after that by RCA to work at their studios uh, at Sunset and Vine. And uh, so then Hank used me, and from then on, I did, you know, Atari, more music for Peter Gunn, Mr. Lucky, Mr. Lucky Close Latin, uh, Two for the Road. I mean, I did so many things with Hank, and he was one of my all-time favorites. And he had a great sense of humor, very funny guy. But he would come in with his score, and he'd put it on the desk, and he'd push the score up and push all my faders all the way up to the top. <laughs> and he'd look at me and smile, and I'd say, oh, God. So I got wise to it, you know, after the first time. I'm not stupid. So before he came in, I marked where each fader was so I could get them all back and didn't have any, there was no automation in those days, you know, and everything was still mono and two track and, uh, and then I think four track. But yeah, he was, I love Hank. Uh, he was just a wonderful human being and, and one of the most talented people I'd ever worked with. Uh, and the musician just loves working with him. He did a thing, and I think this is in the book too, but he did a thing. If in those days you went one minute past 11, all the musicians got a half hour overtime. So it'd be two minutes to 11, we'd have a take, and Dick Pierce was the producer. And Dick would say, Great, that, great, Hank, that's it, we got it, great. And Hank would say, No, 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 I heard a little mistake here in the violas or something in the, in the flutes. Uh, we got to do one more. We do one more and we go two minutes, three minutes into overtime and everybody got a half hour overtime, all the musicians. And he did that on every single session. As an act of generosity to the musicians. That's his way of saying thank you to the musicians. So they all got a nice little extra paycheck uh, because of Hank. And RCA wasn't mad at him for running over budget because he was... Uh, he was making so much... <laughs> He was making so much money for them, they didn't care. No one came out of his budget anyway, you know. So do you ever travel outside of uh, L.A., you know, to go work in studios abroad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I worked at, uh, I worked at Air, I worked at Abbey Road. I go to New York a lot, or I did. And I, I worked, I like uh, the uh, power station in New York. That's a great room. I'm fortunate. In a lot of occasions, I can bring my wife with me so she can go out shopping or whatever while I'm working and we're still together. And that, that's always nice. You know, I love working. And if it's in the middle of a cornfield and they got a console, then uh, I'll be there. What do you think about all the up and coming musicians who are at home and playing each instrument one at a time? I know what you're talking about there. And it's, it's just irritating to me only because you got a drummer in LA, you got a bass player in San Francisco, you got a guitar player in Denver, and they're all doing their little part. Well, when you have them all in the same room, they play off one another. The guitar player will play something that will trigger the keyboard player to play something. You don't get that when you're doing one at a time and you don't get them 
talking to one another. Hey, if you did this, I can do that. And, you know, you work little things out. So what do people do if they have a sustained amount of time like this where they actually can't get together? And you have to do something like that. And, you know, I understand that it's not a problem that they've caused. It's a problem that we're all having. And, and, and look, you've got to earn a living. And I can understand people doing that, you know, one at a time and that kind of thing. You know, I can't wait till uh, this pandemic is over and we can all get back in the studio. And I miss hugging the musicians. I miss chatting with them, asking how their family is, how the kids are, you know, that kind of stuff, what they've been working on. Um, you know, I miss all that. I miss, I miss being part of that. It's really, um, it's, a, it's a drag. I, I know people who are totally uh, out of money. You know, what do you do? Music cares, helps as much as they can, but they're running out of money. So, uh, yeah, we, and we, we got to do something about who's running this country because this guy is a total bozo and he doesn't know what he's doing. He's got us all messed up. And if he was smart enough to do something at the beginning, maybe we all wouldn't be in this position today. That's my political rant. Sorry. It's okay. I mean, I think we all miss hugging and we all miss playing music together at the same time. You know, I wonder what we all can do to help one another because, you know, live venues are really closing down. I mean, even even media is closing down because I, you know, sometimes I'll do press and there'll be so many typos in it. And I'm being told the editors aren't there anymore and the copyists aren't there anymore. And And right. And, you know, I don't have a studio in the house. I never wanted one because I figured once I left the studio, I wanted to be free of all that. And I didn't want one in the house. But I get calls for work that way. So Nico Bolas is one of my dear friends. He's like my brother. I talk to him about it. I get him to work and he, he gets the work to mix and do all that. And, uh, and that way I keep the client happy. Nico's happy. I'm happy. You know, we're all doing something. So that's a good thing. I thought you were going to say you, Nico was going to come over and set a rig up for you. No, 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 no. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't want that. And I love that. I can't mix in a box. I don't know how. I'm not one of those guys, you know. I need a board. I need a big analog board and speaker and uh, and my gear. I have a lot of gear that I bring. How about tape? Do you miss tape or do you use tape or are you okay? Not anymore. I'll tell you a little story about tape. We were doing a Diana Carl record and Tommy LaPuma was producing it. And I wanted to uh, go to digital. We were already up to 96K. So uh, Steve Jenowick, my assistant, he was able to lock up the tape machine and the Pro Tools rig so that they were playing together. Mm. And so he had a switch back there where he could go back and forth. And Tommy and Diana came in to listen to a playback. And we switched back and forth. They didn't even notice it. So when we told them what happened, they said, oh, my God, that's great. She said, well, I like 
take three, but I like the piano solo in take two better. So Steve was able to just drop the piano solo into take three, and that was it. It took two minutes. Now, if we had to do that on tape, it would have taken a half an hour, cutting, marking, cutting, putting another roll on, and that kind of stuff. Now we do everything at 192, and uh, I'm a happy camper with it. Almost all the records I've made in the last eight years, ten years, maybe, have all been on Pro Tools, and uh, they all sound great. I don't have a problem. Yeah, it sounds like the fact that you don't want a rig in your house also speaks to a balanced way of living that makes you the best you can be when you're in the studio, and then you're recharged and nourished by your home life. That seems like a healthy way to go. No, I agree with you 100%. Healthy way to go. That's it. (laughs) Trying to stay healthy. Yeah, and in balance. And, yep. and I want to talk to you about dress because you say in your book, you've said this many times, something about when people show up in the studio and they're well-dressed and they're groomed, it sets a tone for the day. Can you talk more about that or where that came from? Sure, sure. It comes from the early days when I was a little kid and I would go over to my uncle's studio in New York City and watch him record. And everybody was always dressed up nice with tie and suits and and stuff like that and then when when i got out of the service and got a job uh at a studio it was the same thing we all came in everybody wore ties and sport jackets we didn't have lab coats but you know everybody always looked nice i do it still to this day nico i got taught nico into wearing wearing a tie all the time the only time i don't wear a tie is on the weekends if if we're working on a weekend i I won't wear a tie. The rest of the time I have, you know, great ties, great shirts. And I think everybody should look good and smell good. And, and you know, you don't want funk around. You don't want people smelling bad or sloppy or that kind of thing. So I think it sets a, 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 sets a pace for, um, for everybody that comes in. Some of the times, some of the musicians that I'm working with, they know I'm doing it. They'll wear ties just because I do, you know? So that's always a nice thrill for me. Uh, I always like that. But I think it's always, and you know, it's in the book, what assistants should do and everything. But you're going to be in a small room for maybe eight, 10, sometimes 12 hours with one another. You, you, you don't want somebody that's not taking care of themselves. Of course. So, Al, what do you listen to if you're not listening to your own work? What do you listen to for pleasure? I listen to jazz. I'm a real jazzer. I was a bebopper when I was a kid, and Charlie Parker, and Suit Sims, and all the great saxophone players. And my wife likes classical music, so we listen to uh, some classical music at times. It's rare that we listen to something I did, unless it's an album I just finished and I play it for my wife. So it works all right. Are your records coming out on vinyl, the ones that you do most recently, and do you bring home, you know? Yeah, I think uh, Diana's, the the new one, Diana's coming out on vinyl, and I'm pretty sure that uh, Melody will be vinyl too. So do you listen to that at home or? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, I usually get an acetate 
I do my mastering at uh, the bakery with Eric Bollinger, and I love him. And he's a great musician, and uh, he studied under my favorite, Doug Sachs. He sends me a vinyl, uh, and I listen to it, and okay, everything. And then he tells me little things he can fix, a lot of sibilance maybe that has to be toned down a little, and he's able to do that without destroying anything. It's great, yeah. And I do listen at home. I have a nice setup at home. What are your speakers at home? Uh, they're Tannoy self-powered speakers. I've had them about, I don't know, 14 years now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I love them. And, and I use Tannoy's at the studio, but the uh, Doug Sachs Tannoy's. But they relate quite well with my Tannoy's at home. So uh, I'm happy with that. That's great. Well, I don't know what else to ask. We've covered a lot. Yeah, we did. But I think you have some good stuff now, and there, there'll be some things that no one else has. And uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. You just heard our second interview with the most successful and honored audio engineer in popular recording history. If you're interested in learning more about Al Schmidt, you can get his memoir, On the Record, written with Maureen Droney. I love this book. In it, he gives diagrams for suggested microphone placements. He talks about recording different instruments and how he uses reverbs. You'll see drawings of iconic recording rooms at Capitol, RCA Victor, the Sony Scoring Stage, Sunset Sound, and more. Song Chronicles is a podcast that chronicles the -the behind-the-scenes stories of popular music history as told by the music makers themselves, and there are a lot of exciting episodes coming up. We'll return with a two-part interview with singer-songwriter, actress, businesswoman, and three-time Grammy winner, and another guest who has her star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, the much-loved Gloria Estefan. Until then, please check out our earlier episodes with J.D. Salver, Desmond Childs, Sam Hollander, Kathy Valentine, Gail Ann Dorsey, and Peter Case. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please, it is a labor of love, so we appreciate your feedback. Leave us a review on Apple, YouTube, or wherever you stream. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.